0: ladies and gentlemen dreamers and doers seekers of purpose and fulfillment welcome to passion on purpose the podcast that sets your soul on fire and ignites the spark within you i'm your host Steph hilfer and i'm beyond thrilled you're here passion on purpose features leaders experts and sometimes me on center stage we put the spotlight on visionaries entrepreneurs leaders experts and everyday heroes to share their journey of self-discovery, enthusiasm and unwavering determination. We'll explore how they use their passion and purpose to fuel their brand. Alongside our leaders, we'll provide practical tips, actionable advice and wisdom from our experts across various fields. So if you're ready to unleash your inner fire, shake off the doubts and insecurities, and pursue a life of purpose with unbridled enthusiasm, then let's dive in. All right, guys, we are back with another episode of the Passion on Purpose podcast. And today I have an expert with me, Cal Byer with um, Holmes Murphy. I almost butchered the name there. You work with Holmes Murphy, and I have to read this, guys, because this is the, the, the longest but the best title I think I've ever heard, Cal is the VP of Workforce Risk and Worker Wellbeing. If that is not the best title to have ever, uh, I don't know what is. I'm so excited to have you on the show, Cal. Um, Guests don't know this, but I'm transparent to a fault. We have had the most fun last five months of trying to get you on the schedule. (laughs) So I'm just so happy that we're finally here.
1: It's great to be with you, Steph, and um, patience is a virtue. And uh, this is going to be an incredible opportunity for us to help people who maybe aren't even aware that they need help for someone they know and care about, could even be a stranger. It's just an opportunity to teach about resources to help people in all walks of life address workplace mental health, substance misuse, suicide, and even opioid risk reduction. Thank you for uh, this opportunity to share with your listeners, and I've just been a big fan of yours since we got introduced by a mutual friend, and uh, I'll let you share that so I don't steal all the thunder.
0: (laughs) You read my mind. Yes, I'm. thank you for being here and kind of queuing up where we're going to go today. Um, If you guys are fans and you've listened to the show, season one, I had Laurel Youngstrom She is with Youngstrom Safety. Her and her husband, who is a paraplegic, travel the world sharing their message. Laurel was kind enough to introduce Cal with me. And we, you know, have a lot of, between the three of us, I mean, all of us, right? No matter matter what, we've all gone through struggles in our life. We all have known someone either very, very close or in our circle who has been a victim of mental health, a victim of workplace injury, um, unfortunate, you know, taking of lives. There's been a lot, every single one of us has a story around that. And so when Laurel told me, oh, you've got to talk to Cal and I'm like, oh, okay. Who's Cal? What's Cal do? And I'm like, yeah, I got to talk to Cal. So, um, I'm really, let me, I want to frame this up for you guys so that you have a good sense of where we're going. I want you to stick it out. Our experts, um, you know, our expert episodes are a little longer, but we're going to give lots of actionable tips. So I want you to stick it out for this. We're going to start by Cal giving us a little bit of a, you know, how workplace mental health is truly imperative for people to think about. It's imperative to think about safety, health, and wellness all when it comes to workplace mental health. So we're really kind of just summarize how important that is. And then secondly, we've got to talk about how important it is to talk about the tie between the holistic approach, the comprehensive approach between the workplace and mental health. Opio- I'm going to say this wrong the whole time, guys, so just bear with me. Opioid, opioid Misuse, substance misuse, substance prevent, or excuse me, suicide prevention, um, just all these, well, world walks of this realm. We really need to start talking about that. And so Cal's here going to give us some really actionable calls for our leaders in these industries, in construction, in, in so many different industries, truly any industry that deals with employee management. Um, he's going to give us our call, which he calls the three V's. And he's going to give us some really actionable tips on what you can be doing no matter where you're at in your employment, as a manager, as employee, as the CEO, wherever you're at in your journey. I know Cal has really great tips to change the scope of what mental health, what workforce safety looks like. This is not just a call for Cal to save you know, his employees. This is about every single employer shifting the mentality around what we talk about, what we think we can't talk about and ultimately saving lives. So I know we're getting super deep right off the bat, not even five minutes in, but this is the most serious, important topic. And I'm just thrilled that we're going to get to learn from you today, Cal.
1: Steph, I'm so grateful that Laurel connected us. Her and her husband share their lived experience with a workplace injury that dramatically impacted their lives and the love that they have for one another, their courage in sharing their story, are the things that give hope that we can help people by breaking stigma, by shattering those myths, by shining light on truth and letting people know that hope, help, and recovery are a pathway For whatever that ailment is whether it's stress it could be a financial challenge if we don't feel hope we're going to struggle but when we have hope then we know help is available and if we seek help or accept help recovery is possible and that um, is a powerful connection that we share in laurel and i'm just grateful that she made that connection and i love your energy i love the way you are so positive and you really have a healthy outlook. And um, I think you're the right person to introduce these tough topics that have been taboo for so many years. And I think people are going to really see that we can talk about these topics and it can have almost immediate impact.
0: Yeah. Uh, Thank you for that. I, I, you know, I personally have uh, two parents with cognitive disorders. Um, I, you know, our mutual friend, Laurel, uh, was my neighbor for 10 years, you know, so living next to her and seeing the life that her husband as a paraplegic lives and watching them as neighbors, right, seeing the the different walks of life. I don't know if I even dare say the struggles, but right, the differences that they live. Um, my own experiences with two parents with cognitive disorders, um, one of which uh, was perpetuated or, or worsened, rather, by workplace injury. Um, and so it's really important. I get really... I'm going to do my best <laughs> to not get emotional during our call today, but it hits home. I think that's the point, is it really hits home for me, and I know it hits home for a lot of people. So uh, when you started saying that you know, people need hope and people need to have someone to be able to talk to... We don't inherently think of our workplace for that. Why is that?
1: There's just been a separation historically between our personal lives and our work lives. We compartmentalized. And I want uh, your listeners to know I am a risk management, safety, health, and wellness practitioner. I'm not a clinician. I've been a risk manager with a big heart. And in the workplace, I saw myself gravitating toward human capital risk management. And that was an interesting angle of all the different types of risk organizations face. The one that was greatest and the one that they struggled with the most historically over my 35 year career has been human capital risk management. We did better with the financial side. We had insurance for risk transfer, but we also had opportunities to look at insurance and legal risk And then I specialized many years in fortuitous risk, those emergency preparedness, disaster response. But no matter what I did, it came back to people as the building blocks of culture, and they're the core asset for any company. So if we believe in human capital risk management, we have to take care of our people. If they're the core asset, then we need to walk the talk. So employees know we're genuine and authentic in our care for them. And what the turning point was, Steph, was this idea of a caring culture could become a safety net, and we could reach people in a different way, We could let them know we cared about them actively, not passively, and we could teach them through our empathy and through our compassion and our concern that help was available. And over time, we realized those compartments created barriers and separations didn't create this unified culture but when we were open to challenging that status quo to talk about it without fear but in courage and being bold people leaned in and obviously when the pandemic hit Mm -hmm. it was the game changer it became this catalyst where mental health became top of mind and now every work group more or less is expecting employees to offer support and assistance. I happen to be a boomer, and uh, the boomers historically have gotten a bad rap for not being open to workplace mental health. But anyone who saw the effects of the pandemic recognized adult children and even grandchildren were struggling. And the way to reach the boomers was to teach them how to care for their families. That's why they work hard. That's why my generation has been uh, using our provider genes to care for our families often at self-sacrifice our own detriment so staff this was going to be a really wild ride today i can tell already
0: (laughs) yes i'm already thinking about you know our boomer generation and what how how they were shaped to have such a divide when it comes to what you just said right to provide um and then this idea that in order to provide we need to separate the idea of how we are doing, how we as a, let's just go with man, right? Because even so many of our boomers still had the the man was the provider and that was the stigma and expectation as well. And that meant self-sacrifice. Where, you know, it just as an expert in this place and as a boomer yourself, you know, I I love that you point out that to reach the boomers, we have to go to our grandkids and our kids. But what are you doing to help our boomers see that self-sacrifice isn't going to be the way to help themselves?
1: Yeah, one really positive message is to let people know that we want them to get to retirement to enjoy their life and focus on injury prevention. When people say to me, what's the best strategy for safety? and to win the hearts and minds of employees it's to genuinely show that we care and one way that has been almost foolproof for me in that 35 years is to demonstrate an interest in people in their family and often that's what people will share well that's why i work so hard i've got a wife i've got my children i got grandchildren now and you can appeal to that family connection Even people who have not married, who don't have children of their own, Mm -hmm. they have family and we just need to let them know it's not too late to restore or redeem relationships that have been broken and um, give them tools to share how they can do that. Just being open about this human challenge. And you use that word struggle. Um, There are memes in social media. The struggle is real. And regardless of what that issue is through an intentional mindset of being positive and having optimism tapping into hope we can change that mindset and move from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset and when that is available and people don't feel judged then we've got that possibility of of hope and so i could share many of these techniques but appealing to that sense of family, sense of purpose, identify what's of interest to that individual and open the possibilities of them sharing that with others. Another strategy has been mentoring programs, tapping into those experienced employees, getting them to teach job and task specific training. Um, Sharing their expertise with others is another way to showcase how important they are to the organization. Years ago, we worried about sharing because someone could replace me. But some industries like construction, where I spend a lot of my time, 500,000 people short, no one's gonna steal your job. We're looking for future workers to share the burden. Mm
0: -hmm. But I think Mm -hmm.
1: one other technique would be, can we do a better job pre-planning for injury prevention? And if we can do that, um, we avoid a lot of these challenges with potential exposure to opioids to pain, which can lead to sleep deprivation, which can contribute to fatigue, which creates this idea of presenteeism, people being at work, but not fully engaged. Mm -hmm. And that leads to distractions and a lack of focus, which leads to productivity challenges, safety issues, quality concerns, uh, morale on job sites, uh, in workplaces suffers, and nobody has fun in the workplace. Yeah. So if we can focus on injury prevention, we can minimize a lot of these challenges.
0: So I hear there's three things that we should be doing and that I would imagine you're helping you're helping through your speaking and through what you do as the VP of work workforce risk and worker well-being. I hear three things. First of all, we need to show we actually care. So I want to dive into these deeper, but let me recap it. We should got to actually show we care, right? We need to give workers, employees, the opportunity to share their passions with others without fear of losing their own, you know, place in the workforce. And then we also need to be more proactive with injury protection or injury prevention. And I want people to hear this, right? We think injury protection or excuse me, injury prevention. And the first thing we think of is not breaking our leg. But I know just from our talk so far, and what I've we've off-air been able to talk about, we're also talking mental.
1: Yeah. Right? We're also
0: talking injury prevention in more than just what you can see, right? So, out of those three that I just recapped, can you kind of share some like more actionable? What does it look like to show we care? That we can say that all day long, but as an employer as an employer, with people, how do we actually show we care in a a way that is, you know, HR approved, dare I even bring that up, but like (laughs) HR approved, you know, like that's, I think a lot of people's fear.
1: Yeah. I love the companies that I get to visit where culture is palpable. You can feel it. Sometimes from the parking lot, you'll see bright, open spaces in a foyer. You'll see signs, posters. My own employer has murals on the walls and the workspace was deliberately designed for collaboration and to promote this sense of, hey, we're all part of a team. And there's ample opportunities for gathering points. The big uh, coffee station, not worried that people are going to mingle for a little bit and have water cooler talk, but to truly promote this sense of belonging, this sense of inclusion. Um, That's one thing that companies can be really mindful of. Secondly, like the built environment, these office spaces can promote physical and mental well being. So if an employer has an opportunity to create walking paths um, that are safe, even if it's just a perimeter around a parking lot, not every office is going to have ample opportunity for open space or green space. But finding opportunities use whatever space you have to build these intentional meeting places. I've met a company recently that was intentional about these, I would have called them intersection places, meeting places. They call them collision points. They were that deliberate with how they built. They wanted people from different disciplines to collide because innovation was so important to them. And when people shared ideas, that became powerful and they spawned All this innovation, they did some really creative things, but that built environment is one thing. Having encouraging uh, signage, posters, welcoming, having people recognize um, idea boards, uh, whiteboards, places where communications can be informal. I saw a really intentional uh, organization just in the last two weeks. They had people on a whiteboard share a picture Um, using markers um, to just demonstrate their creativity, their connection, and the things that were important to them. Not everyone was artistic. I would have been terrible at that. I probably would have just put a big smiley face and, hey, that's cool for me. But letting people express themselves and then being accepted for who they are. But really, deliberately, when you build a caring culture, it's letting people know we see you, we hear you, we recognize you, find opportunities to celebrate and affirm people, demonstrate through feedback, value your contributions, everyone's role matters. And then rather than highlighting individual successes, try to celebrate those team successes. When we can build teams that have purpose, um, we can do really powerful things. But mostly I think what's gonna be the most important element here is showing through leaders that uh, we're here to knock down barriers to help you be successful. Um, that we're not the smartest people in the room. We're not the only important people. You're invited to be part of our team because we need you. You bring skills and talents and gifts that we need to be able to meet the needs of our customers. And that is how you build this culture very intentionally. And I'm excited to see companies doing some amazing things with culture.
0: I'm really intrigued at the idea, like some of those, so about everything you said until the end of it was all almost what I would call passive care, right? It was, you know, we're going to build these things so that they know we care by providing it. Now, my question is, are like, like the example of the colliding paths, is that spoke of, is that? Or is it just we're going to build it and then see it happen? Or do we talk about it like in the culture? We actually say, "Hey, when you when you guys are in the halls, you know, you'll be running into each other. We we hope that you're chatting. Like, how verbal or clear or intentional are they actually speaking to this? Or is that it just-
1: particular company staff? They had resistance. Why are we doing this? Why are we over here? We think this would be more efficient we're not looking for efficiency we're looking for intentionality and um so they did counter that resistance about we can't always just be efficient if we're efficient we're going to stay siloed we're going to stay in our own little space we want these collisions and so that's why we did this so thanks for your input and yes we understand it would have been easier and cheaper to just have the coffee station here but we wanted it here and it would have been you know, easier to have the restrooms here, but we put them there off a break room. So people would have privacy. And, um, but then when they came back, they would be walking through these collective areas and these little collision zones. So yes, in that case, that organization was very deliberate. I have seen another company that started adding a snack station. They were very subtle. They were seeing what people would do and they wanted to be surprise and serendipity. They wanted people to um, be out exploring. I did meet an employee in that office who said, sometimes I feel like we're rats in a maze. They're just trying to see what we respond to. (laughs) And uh, I had to share that feedback with the owner of the company and uh, he chuckled and he says, never thought about that. Um, But they just had, they built a book library. Um, Didn't tell anyone who was gonna be there. And it was inside an office, and uh, that was kind of a cool thing. And then the snack station was one. And then they changed up their coffee provider. Wow, that had backlash. People <laughs> take their coffee and tea pretty seriously.
0: Well, we I live think, in Seattle. We know that's true.
1: We know that. <laughs> that's like uh, almost sacred, right, to us? Yes. <laughs> but I think what that company learned was we're trying to do the surprise. We didn't want it to be too uh, intentional. We wanted to share you know, gifts with the employees, we're going to ask feedback on the important things. And they decided food was one of those important things.
0: I think what's really the underlying subtle thing that we haven't even talked about here is we're doing all these things to get people to intersect, to get people to come together, uh, literally to break bread together, right? Have a snack. And I think that's something our culture, even the term break bread is not really a common term that's used in like my generation or definitely younger, but really the idea of breaking bread together was always around this communion and, and bringing bodies and energy and humans together. And we've gotten really separated from that. And so I wanted to point out that everything you're talking about is by to show you care is to bring people together again. And I think when we're talking about our grand spoke ground, you know, the grand thing we're here to talk about today, which is mental health and suicide prevention and substance abuse, you know, how important, if this was your number one tip, right, bring people together, how important is it for us as a humanity to realize that we shouldn't be living in our offices all day long without people? Like, how much are you talking about that?
1: I think it's really important. Uh, one, from a safety perspective, getting people up out of their chairs, having uh, you know adjustable desks, maybe stand-up desks, giving people flexible work uh, stations, gets them up and gets them moving, so we're not sedentary. And we stay a little more limber, we stay a little more loose, we get that opportunity for the connection. So that's one aspect. I'm seeing more companies doing some intentionality around warm-up exercise programs to promote uh, this idea of movement leads to positive um, mental health and increased energy, reduces kind of that lapse. Even some of the snacks now are healthy snacks. Um, I've spent more offices with uh, fruit stands or fruit stations and uh, not just the old candy bars and uh, potato chips. So yeah. it's been really fun to see this evolution.
0: I, I'm so glad we got to touch on this idea. I, I'm thinking back to some of my past careers and some of the things that weren't done. I feel super blessed because I'm thinking back to thinking, you know, there was a lot of that. I don't know if I ever correlated how intentional it may or may not have been. Right. So I love that we're telling listeners to be more intentional, create that opportunity for togetherness, right, for companionship, for energy exchange, for inspiration and exchange, and that will innately show your people that you care.
1: Steph, this idea of culture and the employee experience is so crucial. It allows you to build in inclusiveness and belonging and purpose to your work It also builds those bridges, the connections. People want to be part of something bigger than themselves, and it allows you to really use the workplace for creativity and to meet the needs of customers. And when you are empowering and engaging your employees to do great things, when those innovations happen, you can grow in ways that you weren't even thinking. You can expand product lines, product offerings, your success in the marketplace. You can keep things uh, fresh and dynamic. The most important part with the culture like that, you're gonna be able to attract and then retain your talent. Mm-hmm. And um, this is part of the workplace mental health as well. When you have a caring culture, there will be many organizations that are drawing people. You'll become an employer of choice. And um, when you have that and you have less turnover, you have fewer ripple effects, those externalities that become time sucks. I know it's not the most professional word, but I think people can <laughs> yeah. understand he's speaking truth here. Those time sucks that distract leaders from doing those important things. When companies are able to build that base of people who belong and they're looking out for one another. It reduces stress. And now you've got opportunities for pathways for healthy conversations.
0: Mm -hmm. I think uh, one of the biggest struggles that you hear across the board for entrepreneurs, employers, businesses right now is the struggle to hire, retain, quality workers. One of the things I preach about all of the time is how important your internal brand conversations are right actually talking about why do you exist right not just to sell the, the the pens or the water bottle or to you know build the buildings or whatever it is that you do what deeper fuels that action right um oftentimes it's mission statements manifestos core values right however that looks but what happens and i i say this a lot is it ha- is it'll get put on a poster and it'll be put in a hallway that no one walks down never to be spoke of again um and and i think this leads us into this uh, beautifully into your second point of how you can you know make some changes internally and you had said let the employees teach and share their passion with others how how are you seeing that done or how are you encouraging people to do that
1: One way is a little more formal. It could be an employee resource group, ERG, or affinity groups, where people can, depending on the size of your organization, of course, you have to scale this. But the organization that I work for has a number of ERGs, and we're going to be expanding those. So people can volunteer for like-minded topics, and then they're able to provide support to one another and share their experiences, express their challenges, share resources and ask for resources. And uh, that's one way of building that camaraderie, but also capacity and competence to help others. A second way is through community service. This has been a really powerful connection. One of the antidotes for stress and really a reliever of stress is this attitude of gratitude and when you are doing something you're passionate about and you're helping others it almost makes you forget that um, your challenges are you know of concern you're helping others and you're just being validated for your contributions of helping others i know it sounds a little pie in the sky but i just see as more organizations do community service It reinforces their core values, and it really expands their sense of purpose and meaning in their work. So those are two ideas that I would share. There would be others, these ideas of mentoring. And today I'm finding many organizations hiring interns to uh, bring in some fresh ideas and uh, to build a pipeline to create that sense of internal branding and uh, to get ahead of that talent war. Give people an opportunity yeah. to mutually kick the tires to see if this is a good place of employment and if you're a good fit for our culture. So those would be like four things that come to mind.
0: I think uh, the one that is sitting with me right now is um, there's that silly joke, you know, if you're ever upset, go to Mexican because no one's ever unhappy at Mexican, like at a Mexican restaurant. And I was thinking about community service. When you are doing acts of community service, it puts your own weight and struggles and frustrations and sad or anger or whatever it puts it into perspective that either a we're all struggling it's all there's a lot of us going through a lot of things or also you know look at what others are going through look at how i'm helping yes. others right and look at how i can set aside things are bad or things are going you know maybe i have some bad things going on but i can set them aside enough to help others and um i think that is one it's a twofold it's like such a beautiful way to support your internal team but then also your community and give back and even you know self-promote here and promote what you do through your company through these kind acts as well
1: yeah they stand out i shared with you um we celebrated independence day 91 years of being an independent uh, firm um and every office across the country was doing community service activities, giving back uh, to local causes. We keep statistics on how many volunteer hours are are maintained and where are we at year to date to just encourage people. The company gives uh, two days uh, per employee per year to do volunteer service. It's just a wonderful way to reflect on our core values, that this is part of what we do and who we are. And, then you build this ethos, this sense of uh, common purpose. And it's just been uh, fun. I've been there for three years. I've known the firm for over 20, had an opportunity in 2004, it just didn't work because I had moved uh, to a different startup organization. But um, I feel like I get the opportunity to be part of something really special. And then doing the work that I do even more so. I have so many uh, supporters of the work that I do.
0: I think it's fascinating because we haven't really talked much about what Holmes Murphy does um, and how your role has trickled into not just supporting Holmes Murphy, but also the clients of Holmes Murphy. And I think, while I didn't, I want to make sure we get to a couple of the other actionable things. I want to take this middle moment for you to share how that looks, your role at Holmes Murphy and in your, in your specific role with your clients.
1: So, Steph, for the seven prior years before I came to Holmes Murphy, I was working as a risk manager for a construction company based in Issaquah, Washington with operations in multiple states. And we were a 24/7 operation, um, generally six days a week, but sometimes during the construction season, we were seven days a week. And from the platform of risk management, they allowed me to build mental health and suicide prevention into our risk and safety culture. I didn't show up as the new guy talking about workplace mental health. I was looking to see how ready we were to make that change. So I was looking at, I called it safety as unusual. And people would say, what does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. And they kind of thought I was probably speaking in parables, but I wanted people to stop and ask. Well, I would say, what do you think is working? What do you think you would change? But the most powerful aspect was talking to people about let's get you to retirement in better shape than what our industry has normally uh, done. So things like muscular skeletal injury prevention, sprains and strains, let's focus on ways we could reduce those. And it gave me a chance to talk about how to avoid the risks of opioids. It gave me a chance to talk about teamwork and collaboration. And then we talked about nutrition, hydration, proper sleep dealing with heat related illness in those summer months. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, we go from 60, 70 to boom, 80 and 80 here feels like 90, right?
0: Yeah.
1: And 85 feels like hundred. And so we need to find ways to teach people to look out for one another, to be observant. And then we looked at hearing loss in the construction Mm -hmm. industry. Sixty percent of workers are subject to uh, risk of hearing loss. So we were really being intentional to teach people the why and then the how about hearing protection and really breaking through. And within 45 days of teaching this, we had pictures of families that were doing winter activities on ATVs or chopping firewood or at hunting ranges or even actual hunts wearing hearing protection to teach the younger generation to protect their hearing. So by seeing signs of winning their hearts and minds, them teaching their family, I'm like, it's time to roll out workplace mental health. And when I did, people were like, you've been planning this since you got here. I was, but I didn't want to outrun the supply line. I told our company president, I wouldn't push this. I would wait till people were ready. And then staff, we were teaching role playing to teach people how to talk about mental health, to let people know it's okay to not be okay. We were teaching them how to use employee assistance programs. You know, there's benefit programs for this You're either through a labor union, or if you're a salaried employee through our health plan. And here are some of the crisis hotlines. We started doing special hard at stickers way back in 2015. We did wallet cards to share. We had 700 employees, but we printed over 22,000 of those cards and just made those available to owners to suppliers to subcontractors to agencies we were doing work with and employees started taking those to children's schools back to class reunions to military uh, veteran uh, events to share hope with others and um, it'd be truly powerful i'll never forget within a week of doing the role-playing employees were helping employees within a month It wasn't uncommon for us to see families helping families deal with struggles. And then by the next quarter, we saw when we did our divisional safety meetings, employees stepping forward to say, I'm happy to share if it helps one other family, let them know what help we got, either from an employee assistance program, from a helpline or from another employee. And um, that was intentional how we built a culture. We had a great culture before I got there, that organization is over 60 years old. They've done great things. The owners knew employees by name. They did recognition programs. They did town halls at every uh, division. I came in to just change the emphasis of that safety culture. It was already strong before I got there.
0: It was to to almost evolve the culture from just one of of where it was great but then to put emphasis on these areas that we don't speak of enough you know everyone's yeah, great at work i mean like sorry i didn't want to cut you off but i just it just hit me you know every, uh like my father-in-law um was phenomenal loved still i ran into some of his co-workers at a bar and they just were raving about how much they love him and he was such a hard worker and uh, when he retired um that was gone and that there was never a conversation about, you know, how 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 is it at home? It was always just, you know, great culture there, but never deeper than that. And it sounds like what you brought to the company that you were at before Holmes Murphy, you took it a deeper level.
1: I think the organization always cared. I think this was just going into an area that had been off limits. We were showing right. people we care so much. We're gonna have these tough conversations. We care so much. We want you and your family to be safe from what we see as risks. And by building this into safety, health and wellness, it just normalized it. And then we built it into our HR and employee benefits. I think your comment about retirees is so important. I'm so glad you raised that. Some of the coolest things I've seen companies do is be intentional to reach out to retirees. And I've seen so many organizations have a huge impact on retirees who are more lonely, isolated, especially those that have had illness or lost uh, a Mm -hmm. spouse, who are feeling the need to feel connected to something. And those organizations that either send swag or have a newsletter or bring them back for company uh, gatherings at the holidays or whenever, I think that's just one of the most powerful pathways toward workplace mental health. And you could tap those folks in that mentoring program as well. Or some of the hobbies that retirees might have might be an opportunity to teach, you know, children of current workers, hey, you make Christmas ornaments? You do wood carving? Who's seen Mm -hmm. wood carving? So it's been fun to to just help people be intentional
0: in these areas. I think going back to your first point, right, we've become so siloed and you get extra siloed when you retire. And so by bringing that full circle of getting us back in to the collision points, you know, um, that's going to really help internal retirees, you know, the the whole spectrum. Um, That's awesome. So I want to, I'm looking at the clock and there, I want to make sure we get to your three Vs, but you had also had a third point of what actively employers can be doing. And the third one was to talk about passions was second. Third, oh, I'm blanking, Cal. First one was show your care. Second one was, um, let people show their passions. Oh, talk about injury prevention or prepare for injury prevention. That's what it was. So how can we actively be doing that?
1: So I think you raised the dimension of both physical injury and maybe emotional injury. Um, the way that I did this years ago, and I wanted your listeners to know in 2010, I was appointed to a new group called the national action Alliance for suicide prevention. And I had been involved in this area for many years, but as a non-clinician, I was the only non-clinician at that point. And uh, my first workplace suicide prevention program was in the 1992 to 94 range. It was why are people attempting suicides in jails? And I got people to open up and to share, and we got to build solutions and strategies, change the way that uh, law enforcement uh, recruits were trained. We changed some systemic opportunities. I tell you stuff in 1995, I moved to the construction industry in 96 in 95. Someone said, dude, if your mission is saving lives, you should go to this industry construction because they killed 1500 people last year in occupational injuries. And when I moved from Chicago to the East coast, I saw contractors working side by side, those first responders. And the first responders had officer assistance programs, peer support groups, and even, uh, chaplains instruction, not so much. And so we had to teach people how to care for people after bad injuries. It's called critical mm-hmm. incident response. Sometimes we use employee assistance programs. So to make a long story short, by the time hurricane Katrina hit, I was teaching across the country and what I was finding people wanted to come together to learn about these caring cultures. And then we were teaching them some of these techniques that we were learning. As we started hearing about overdoses and suicides, the things that we never used to hear about in the workplace, people were trusting to share because they knew that we would offer help and guidance. So a couple of things that are really important is do you have an employee assistance program and have you promoted it well to your employees? Test it before you promote it, make a test call, see if it works, see if you've got the right number, get literature, brochures, wallet cards, hard hat stickers, um, refrigerator magnets from your service provider and let employees know this is a resource that's available for you and your uh, family members who are dependents on health plans. If you happen to be a union employer, your union may offer that same type of service and then really understand what your employee benefit program offers. Do you have um, behavioral health services? What do you offer for teens? What do you offer for preteens? Recognize that 65% of the counties in the US are mental health deserts. There's not enough support available. So needing employee assistance programs or teaching people how to use the crisis hotlines. So learn what happens when I call 988, the new three digit number for mental health services and talk to people about 988. What happens when you make that call here? This is available. It's free, it's confidential, it's 24 seven. And um, that's powerful. Teach them about crisis text line also.
0: I'm sorry. Oh, maybe you were just about to answer my question. Is 988 the same as 211?
1: So 211 is something here in King County and many urban areas across the country have a 211. It is a government hosted uh, service. Not all are 24 seven. But it gives you the opportunity to contact someone and to ask for support from governmental agencies and even some social service nonprofits who can offer resources. So whether it's homelessness, you might need legal aid, you might need uh, medical care, you might need help with a home repair. Um, There's so many opportunities in 211 to just let people know help is available. The 988 is the former National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That was a 10-digit number, and it was really hard for people to remember. 988 was to simplify it. Many people know before you dig, you have to call 811. In the old days, we had 411 if we wanted general information. 211, Steph, you're one of the few people that's ever brought that up. It's another (laughs) support that we have, and most of us don't know about it. And then we go, oh, geez, forgot about that. Yeah, 988 is an opportunity to receive confidential help from trained volunteers, and they've got access to a lot of resources. So if you're a family member concerned about someone, you can call 988 and the phone will be answered. Washington State has been a strong supporter. Oregon has been doing more in this area. Eventually, hopefully over the next three to five years, when people call 988, if there is a true behavioral health crisis, mobile response teams could come and meet with people instead of having a 911 emergency right. law enforcement response. Uh, the goal would be, how do we normalize mental health? It's just safety conversations. And let me get you support. I think
0: It's, it's gonna a- be
1: powerful. And the crisis text line, you can text help or connect to 741-741. And that's available 24 seven. And sometimes people don't want to talk. They just want to text. Or you imagine Mm -hmm. this stuff. The younger generation is going to be more in tune with texting. Yeah. And uh, that's another opportunity, a pathway to show people help. Some are going to want to do it in that private uh, texting manner.
0: Mm -hmm. Others
1: are going to be more comfortable with a call.
0: I think 911, the idea of 911, emergencies. There's a car accident. There's, you know, the physical element. We're so eager and easy. It's easy for us to call 911. It does. There's no stigma around calling 911 when you need it. And I love that. And this is day one of me learning of 988 um, literally moments ago when you said it. I love how similar they are because it's like that's going to be one step closer to normalizing that you can call for help for this, for these needs. It doesn't, you know, there's different needs and they look different, but they are equally as pertinent and you should have Equal support. So I love that that exists. Thank you for sharing that.
1: I love how you just made that uh, connection and the analogy. And it's exactly why we evolved to that point.
0: Yeah.
1: And Steph, I think the most important thing, you know, again, if I use those three words, hope, help, and recovery, okay. regardless of the issue, this is an opportunity for people to reach out for support. I want people to know we can't wait for people to hit rock bottom if they're dealing with a substance misuse. I understand this idea of tough love, but we need to let people know recovery happens in many different ways. It starts by breaking stigma. Sadly, I've had many people I've encountered over the past several years with the nation's worsening opioid crisis saying, well, overdoses are a consequence of bad decisions. And I want to educate your listeners really briefly importance of first dose prevention. We're dealing with a contaminated drug supply. We're dealing with many people who became addicted initially with OxyContin. And then when laws reduced their ability to continue getting the medication they became addicted to, that they were told was not addictive, they had to turn to the street. And that was where heroin and other uh, medications were being used. And yes, they were illicit, but these were people who would have been sick without that. Now we have a synthetic called fentanyl, and one dose can kill. And parents, have the conversation with your children and your loved ones and let them know that you can talk to me, and I will help you, and I won't judge you, and I won't ground you for life. I will help you address this opportunity. But I want parents and all family members to understand There's three leading gateways to new opioid addiction. It's prescriptions for on and off the job injury. Non-opioid pain medications are available. There's alternatives. Ask doctors, dentists, surgeons for a non-opioid and to ask them what the strategy is to have my loved one off opioids by day five. It's not foolproof, but the research shows addiction can start with day one for some individuals, but generally for the broader population, day five. Secondly, surgery, up to 9% of people who have surgery end up with an opioid addiction. The range is eight to 18%, depending on the type of surgery. Again, non-opioid pain medication exists. Ask for it, is it appropriate for my care? If you need an opioid, what's the plan to get me off it within day five? And the third is called diversion of leftover pills. Every year, there's an oversupply of 2 to 3 billion pills left over after surgery. Mm -hmm. 90% of us don't properly dispose of those. So use some form of drug deactivation pouch or take them back to a pharmacy kiosk or use local law enforcement has an annual DEA event. The, what I like about the drug deactivation products, it gets rid of it now. You're not hanging on to it till the next DEA take back day. Mm-hmm. But um, this would be an opportunity. Test 211. Where can I dispose of opioids? And if not, you know, Steph, I'm going to be happy to share resources where people can find these drug deactivation products. Their Deterra drug de- deactivation pouches or a product called RX Destroyer are two that I know well. Okay. And um, they're being sold now in pharmacy stores and retail chains. And I can also share information with you if people reach out to you and want help, um, how they can find that. But realize the risk is real and um, we can take a role in eliminating a lot of the new addiction by just having honest conversations and recognizing there's things that we can do to prevent that first dose.
0: Yeah, it's something that uh, because of the stigma, everyone assumes there's just such, and I hate saying everyone, I hate generalizing, but it is just very easy to see the generalization that happens about why someone overdoses or how they got from zero to a hundred, you know? Um, and there's a whole story in between for each one of those individuals. There is. Um, We don't think about that story uh, unless we've personally dealt with it. Um, sorry these are
1: hard these are hard stories they're tough narratives
0: they are um sorry i didn't mean to didn't mean to get um not at all um but they're hard and we they all hit differently and we all have things we maybe have never even shared um so it's just important to know that what you've got going on sorry i need to regroup (laughs) what you are doing cal is just so important and i just really thank you for touching on this last little part here.
1: Oh, and thank you for allowing me to. And, you know, we did talk about those three Vs. It's being visible, vocal, and vulnerable. And Jen, or Steph, you just (laughs) uh, made yourself vulnerable and by sharing, you know, an emotional reply. And when we do that, it shows our authenticity. It shows we care. It lets people know that you're gonna not judge that person and it's powerful and um, happy to share additional information with your listeners we could have done one just on culture we could have done one just on (laughs) mental health we could have done it on substance misuse and then we could have done it on opioids and so i hope what people will realize the most important message today is we can talk about it and we're still here we broke through some tough topics and lightning didn't strike and (laughs) didn't knock out our power. You're there. I'm here. Everyone is in between, but hope, help, and recovery. And um, those are powerful words to live by. And I just look forward to our next conversation.
0: Yes. Thank you so much. I'm glad we got to really briefly touch on that visible vocal and vulnerable because even for me who preaches all the time that I'm transparent, even to a fault, you know, those, that emotion that just comes up out of nowhere and that vulnerable, you know, the first instinct I have even still in the second is to push back and to hold back and to not let it out. Um, and that's something that I know is perpetuating this, this perpetuating that we won't change. So we need to open up that vulnerability. We need to push through it. I need to let this out, right? It's okay to let it out. And so, um, I am so excited. We got to very briefly touch on it. I wish we had more time to dive into it deeper. You had shared with me um, several great resources. We're going to get links because some of them are PDFs, but there's a quick action starting guide to addressing workplace mental health and suicide prevention PDF. I want to get that into listeners' hands. So we're going to make sure we have at least that link for you guys in the show notes. Um, And then Cal has promised me that anything that he can provide resource-wise to just give him a call give me a call we will make sure you can get in touch with cal um any final last things before we wrap up cal
1: no i think i would like to share a quick quote from a friend of mine he lost a child to suicide now almost seven years ago and i think it shows how important this idea of hope is so he shared A human can live four weeks without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but only four seconds without hope. And that quote hit me like a ton of bricks the day I heard him speak that. So no matter how tough your situation is, if we can keep hope alive, we can break that stigma. Someone will look for a hand up or they're going to make an appeal. If we recognize that that person's not okay and we take that awkward leap of faith to ask if they're fine and if not, how can I help you? And we offer that person support and we sit with them. Everyone can have a role to play in suicide prevention. And this is life affirming. It's life giving. Most of all, it's life saving. And so that gentleman's name is Ray Stenline. He's from Minnesota. It's a beautiful uh, tribute to uh, how important hope is. And um, I want people to know that help is frequently available. We have more people to reach out to than we sometimes think we do. We're not a burden to our families. We're not a burden to our coworkers. We're cared for and people will offer you support.
0: Mm -hmm. so
1: it takes courage on both sides and um thank you
0: yeah thank you it sounds like if if listeners if you take nothing else away from this episode um it just takes four seconds of hope to save a life
1: thank you Steph
0: thank you so much Cal and um we'll probably have to have you back we need to dive into more of this
1: (laughs) yeah keep shining your light bright I love what you do and um just the way you connect with people it's so authentic and i thank just appreciate you. you
0: thank you so much all right guys thank you. until next time <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the passion on purpose podcast i truly hope you got a lot of value out of this episode so if you did please rate review and share if you are interested in being a guest on the show whether a leader or an expert please go to getvim.com forward slash podcast, and you will find our application page or reach out to me directly and I can give you more information.